price of passion And passion is our only crime up from the darkness steaming from these city streets runoff swirling all around us snaking its way down to the sea Yeah.
And that was Legalize Our Love by Timbuk3 from the album A Hundred Lovers. And that song is appropriate for what's in the news lately. Uh, we know that a little while back, Donald Trump trashed the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX, which, among other things, provided for gender equity in restroom use in public schools. Well, there was a, a court case that went up to the Supreme Court. The case was brought by Gavin Grimm, uh, suing to have the right to use the boys' bathroom in his Virginia school. And the Supreme Court initially decided to hear that case, and uh, arguments were supposed to start this month. But the Supreme Court today turned that case back over to the lower courts in the light of Donald Trump's uh, elimination of the uh, Obama administration's interpretation of the rules. Here's a quick story from... CBS and the AP. The Supreme Court is returning a transgender teen's case to a lower court without reaching a decision. The justices said Monday that they've opted not to decide whether federal anti-discrimination law gives high school senior Gavin Grimm the right to use a boy's bathroom in his Virginia school. The case had been scheduled for argument in late March. Instead, a lower court in Virginia will be tasked with evaluating the federal law known as Title IX and the extent to which it applies to transgender students. Grimm was born female but identifies as male. With the principal's permission, he began using the boys' bathroom at Gloucester High School in Virginia. But a couple weeks later, the school board mandated students use either the bathroom that corresponds with their biological gender or a private single-stall bathroom, following parental complaints. The high court action follows the Trump administration's recent decision to withdraw a directive issued during Barack Obama's presidency that advised schools to allow students to use the bathroom of their chosen gender, not biological birth. The administration action triggered legal wrangling that ended with Monday's order. In essence, the Federal Appeals Court in Richmond, Virginia, had relied on the Obama administration's interpretation of Title IX to side with Grimm. The appeals court accepted the administration's reading of the law without deciding for itself what the law and a related, regula and re a related regulation on same-sex bathrooms and locker rooms mean. So that's why the Supreme Court kicked this case back down to the lower court. The lower court will now need to re-examine the case and make its decision before, in all likelihood, that case goes back up to the Supreme Court. Greetings and welcome to Bernie 2020. This is an independent podcast on progressive politics inspired by Bernie Sanders, progressive and radical activism, and the Green Party. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, pack, or political organization. If you want to reach out to me and send me a message, you can send me an email at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. And you can find out more about Bernie2020 at Bernie-2020.com. 
And to help keep this podcast afloat and keep me recording, you can support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash unrelated things. And I started out the program with the the song Legalize Our Love by Timbuk3. And but it goes the the whole issue of the trans community fighting for their rights goes a lot further than or a lot more beyond who we love. It's really comes down to who we are. Who are we as individuals? What makes us us? And what happens when who you are inside is not necessarily the same as what people perceive you to be on the outside. So here is a story from the Huffington Post. This is by Harper Keenan. It is called Dear Trans Kids from a Trans Teacher. You are so loved. Dear trans, gender non-conforming, gender queer, non-binary children, and all the kids whose genders don't yet have words, you are so loved. As Chase Strangio said, he's one of Gavin Grimm's lawyers, I love you for exactly who you are. I love your beautiful wisdom, your defiance, your joy. I love the way you make your own language and choreograph your own dance through the world. I love the way you imagine yourself into being. I love your wonder, and I can't wait to see all that you do in the world. I'm so excited about it. It's the kind of excited you get when you can't sit still because you just know something good is about to happen, like there might be a snow day tomorrow, or it's the hour before your birthday party. That kind. I'm 31 years old now, which is a whole lot older than I was in this picture, and there is a related picture, with my grandpa. I'm a teacher that teaches teachers, which is kind of a tongue twister to say, but it means I work in elementary schools where I wear really boring clothes like khaki pants. Ugh. But in this picture, I'm a very genderqueer four-year-old with a short haircut and a shiny pink Oshkosh swimsuit, sitting on my grandpa's lap admiring the super rad knockoff Tinker Toy Tower we built together. I was so happy. You can tell, right? It was just that simple for me and him. We built stuff and learned stuff together. Sometimes grown-ups make it seem like being transgender or non-binary is so complicated. But I think that a lot of adults just get out of practice when it comes to listening to kids. I'm not sure my grandpa knew the word transgender before I told him that's what I was. But you know what? He still loved me, and he told me so. The first thing he said was, quote, You are the person that all your ancestors strived so mightily to produce, who will make this world a better place. I'll never forget that. That's what adults should do. Although it wasn't always easy, I am so lucky to have had him and lots of other adults in my life who listened to me and loved me no matter what. 
My grown-up life is awesome because of it. I have lots of friends. Some of them are trans and some of them aren't. We have lots of fun together. I know that they love me and always have my back. And they'll have yours too. My life is beautiful. On February 22, the current president of the United States and the people who work with him did an ugly thing. They turned their backs on trans kids. And for those of you who are Muslim, native, black, brown, immigrants or refugees, this wasn't the first time. The president is wrong, and all of you deserve better from the adults in your lives. I don't think the president knows any trans or non-binary kids, or at least not very well. He's certainly not listening to you because he doesn't know about your brilliance and creativity. He doesn't know about how much you know, that special knowledge that trans and genderqueer and non-binary and more. See, once you become an adult, you start running out of creative words. Kids have to offer. You know about the world in a way that most adults don't. You know that grown-ups tell stories about the world to kids that are just a little too simple. Like the kids are only listening when you're sitting with your legs crossed and with your hands in your lap. Or that your teeth will fall out if you eat candy. Or that there's only boys and girls and that always gets figured out when you're born. The thing is, sometimes grown-ups say things to children because they think it makes their lives easier. Most grown-ups are looking out for you. They want you to learn and work hard in school. And sometimes it's easier for lots of kids to listen to one adult talk when it's quiet. But when you're outside on the playground, lots of people are talking at once, and you can totally still listen to your friends, right? And of course, eating candy doesn't make your teeth fall out. Just like that. But adults usually want you to eat food that's healthy for your body. So sometimes they might tell you stuff to make you eat less candy because it seems easier to them than explaining that as long as you brush your teeth afterwards, you'll be fine. Gender is just another thing that a lot of adults haven't figured out a great way of explaining. You and I know that there's lots of different genders in the world. How cool is that, right? There's so many different ways to dress, to express yourself, and lots of different words you can use to describe your body. You know all about that, and that's part of what makes you special. And no one can ever take that away from you. Not even the President of the United States. Nobody can ever take away your knowledge, and nobody can ever take away your joy. Okay, here's where I do that totally adult thing where I tell you, about history, but stick with me for a minute. Trans people have existed all over the world for as long as the world has existed. We are older than the president, and he is really old. We have been doing incredible things for all of that time. We've been making art, building things, teaching people, and creating families for centuries. In fact, there are lots of words that have been used throughout history to describe people who don't quite fit into being a boy or a girl in the way some people might think about it. Trans is just another word that adults came up with to oversimplify the world, but it doesn't mean the same thing to everyone. That's where you come in, and that's why I'm so excited. 
you, your friends, and all the thousands of adults all over the world who love you are going to build stuff and learn stuff together like I did with my grandpa. We're going to fight so hard for you because we love you so much. You are not alone. Your job is to keep playing. Leave the work stuff to the grown-ups so that you can focus on learning new things and building your imagination, creating new words and new ways of understanding things that will help to make this world a better place. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like. We need you for that. But I know that it's going to be really, really amazing to watch. Just promise me one thing. When you do become a grown-up, please remember to listen to the kid, okay? Your friend, Harper. And that was by Harper Keenan in the Huffington Post. And this next piece is from commondreams.org. It is by Nika Knight. It is called Berta Saceres Murder, linked to U.S. trained soldiers, leaked court docs show. Talked about Berta Saceres uh, from Honduras in a previous episode. Leaked court documents obtained by The Guardian and reported on Tuesday appear to corroborate a whistleblower's claim that U.S. trained special forces within the Honduran military were responsible for the death of prominent indigenous land defender, Berta Ceceris, last year. The whistleblower, a former soldier, alleged that the Honduran army was murdering activists on a secret kill list. Quote, Eight men have been arrested in connection with the murder, including one serving and two retired military officers, the Guardian writes. Officials have denied state involvement in the activist murder and downplayed the arrest of the serving officer, Major Mariano Diaz, who was hurriedly discharged from the army. Yet the documents reveal that several of the military suspects received U.S. training and visited Ceceris' town multiple times in the weeks leading up to her death, according to The Guardian. Quote, Five civilians with no known military record have also been arrested, the newspaper adds. They include Sergio Rodriguez, a manager for the internationally funded Agua Zarca hydroelectric dam, which Ceceris had opposed. Moreover, a, quote, legal source close to the investigation told The Guardian, quote, the murder of Berta Ceceris has all the characteristics of a well-planned operation designed by military intelligence, where it is absolutely normal to contract civilians as assassins. It's inconceivable that someone with her high profile, whose campaign had made her a problem for the state, could be murdered without at least implicit authorization of military high command. Under President Barack Obama, the State Department had promised to investigate the alleged kill list, but under President Donald Trump, such an investigation appears unlikely. And in fact, documents uncovered last year by rights activists revealed that U.S. special operations training in Latin America tripled under Obama. 
Honduras has been overwhelmed with violence and state-sanctioned human rights abuses since a U.S.-backed coup overthrew the democratically elected government in 2009. Latin American human rights activists in general are facing what Oxfam International described as an unthinkable spiral of violence as governments are co-opted by economic elites. And I'm going to read the first part of that paragraph again. Honduras has been overwhelmed with violence and state-sanctioned human rights abuses since a U.S.-backed coup overthrew the democratically elected government in 2009. So remember, when you're arguing and fighting and writing about and talking about how Russia influenced our election by whatever deals and conversations they had with the Trump campaign, and by purportedly, but not proven, that they were involved in the Democratic, uh, in hacking the Democratic emails and releasing those through WikiLeaks. That's, that's the extent to which we are up in arms about Russia interfering with our election. When the reality is in our history, and I've talked about this before, and I will talk about this again, is we have done much, much worse than what we think Russia did in this election. Again and again and again around the world, including more recently in Honduras, where we supported a coup when Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State, Barack Obama was the president. We supported a coup that turned Honduras from a, I, I, hate, I, I don't know what the term is, I was going to say average Central American nation, but actually Honduras, under the prior government of Zelaya, was making large strides towards being more inclusive and more egalitarian. And this coup not only turned it around, but really drove the reality for Honduras and Hondurans down to depths they hadn't seen in a while. So let's, I think, let's rightly investigate Russia's involvement in influencing our election, but understand that we're, we don't have the moral high horse. It will take decades for us to come close to doing so, but we should start now, and we should stop meddling in other governments' affairs, stop overthrowing democratically elected governments around the world who don't serve our needs. And I have a piece up next from Haaretz, H-A-A-R-E-T-Z dot com. And it is called, seeing if there's an author here, there's not a specific author because it is the text of Bernie's speech. It is called Read in Full Bernie Sanders Speech on Israel, Trump, and the and, and, Anti-Semitism at J Street Conference. 
So Bernie Sanders uh, did go and give a speech to J Street. Um, instead of me telling you about it, here it is. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Let me begin by uh, thanking Thank you. Let me begin by thanking J Street for inviting me to be with you here today. Uh, it is an honor and a pleasure to be standing with an organization that has shown incredible courage, uh, taking on some very difficult opposition, but understanding that the future of Israel and the Middle East and the future of this world requires us to fight for sane, progressive foreign policy ideas. And I'm further delighted to be in the company of friends from Israel and from the, all over the Middle East, uh, and in fact all over the world, who I know in these very challenging and difficult times will continue the fight for a world of peace, a world of justice, and a world of environmental sanity. As I managed to uh, catch a, a bit of the uh, discussion in the last panel, and one of the panelists made a very, very important point, and that is despair is not an option. Now more than ever, we have got to continue the fight for justice at all levels. And let me uh, note, as I begin, that in the last several months, uh, since Donald Trump's victory in the presidential race, there has been a significant outbreak of anti-Semitism in our country. I, and I know all of you, are alarmed about the desecration of Jewish cemeteries, about bomb threats against Jewish organizations, and about more and more anti-Semitic language. When we see, as a nation, violent and verbal racist attacks against minorities, whether they be African Americans, whether they be Jews or Muslims in our country, immigrants in our country, or the LGBT community, these attacks must be condemned at the highest levels of government. It was rather extraordinary that in the White House's Holocaust Remembrance Day statement, the murder of six million Jews was not mentioned by the Trump administration. I hope very much that President Trump and his political advisor, Mr. Bannon, understand that the entire world is watching 
that it is imperative that their voices be loud and clear in condemning anti-Semitism, violent attacks against immigrants in this country, including the murder of two young men from India, and condemning all forms of bigotry in this country and around the world. You know, our nation has had a very, very rocky road in the fight for democracy and in the fight for equal rights. And we have struggled from the inception of this country to fight against racism, to fight against sexism, to fight against xenophobia and homophobia. And we are telling Mr. Trump and his friends loudly and clearly, we are not going backwards, we are going forwards. We will continue to fight against all forms of bigotry and discrimination. And I must also say that I found it very troubling that at a recent press conference, when President Trump was given an opportunity to condemn the bigotry and anti-Semitism that has arisen in the wake of his election, he chose to respond by bragging, incorrectly by the way, about the size of his electoral college victory. The function of a president, a serious president, conservative, progressive, or whatever, what has always been the function of the president is to bring us together, not divide us up. Let me take this opportunity to thank J Street for the bold voice that they have provided in support of American leadership in the Middle East and ongoing efforts toward peace between Israelis and Palestinians. I understand, and you understand, that given the political climate in this capital, that has not always been easy. I also applaud J Street for being part of a broad coalition of groups that successfully fought for the historic nuclear agreement between the United States and its partners in Iran. That agreement demonstrated that real American leadership, real leadership, Real American power is not shown by our ability to blow things up. But by our ability as the leading and most powerful nation on earth to bring parties together, to forge international consensus. For many years, leaders across the world, including Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, had sounded the alarm about the possibility of an Iranian nuclear weapon. 
what the Obama administration was able to do with the support of groups like J Street and others was to get an agreement that froze and dismantled large parts of that nuclear program, put it under the most intensive inspections regime in history, and removed the prospect of an Iranian nuclear weapon from the list of global threats. As a member of the United States Senate, as I'm sure you appreciate, I hear a whole lot of speechifying. Every day I hear from many of my colleagues how tough the United States has got to be and how at the end of the day military force and tanks and guns and planes are all that matters. Well, I say to those colleagues, many of whom have never been in combat themselves, that it is easy to give speeches in the safety of the floor of the U.S. Senate or the U.S. House, but it is a little bit harder to experience the hell of war and live through the devastation of war. I recall vividly, because I was in the House at the time, about all of the rhetoric that came from the Bush administration, that came from my Republican colleagues and some of my Democratic colleagues, about why going to war in Iraq was the right thing to do. Well, it wasn't. In fact, it was one of the great tragedies of modern world history. Today, it is now broadly acknowledged that the war in Iraq, and I am very proud that I was one of the leaders of the opposition to that war, it is widely acknowledged that that war was a foreign policy blunder of enormous, unthinkable magnitude. The war in Iraq led to the deaths of some 4,400 brave American soldiers and the wounding, and I speak as the former chairman of the Senate Committee on Veterans Affairs, the wounding of tens of thousands of others, both physical and emotional. Not to mention the pain inflicted on the families, the wives and the children of the men and women who suffered. The war in Iraq led to, conservatively speaking, the deaths of over 100,000 Iraqi civili civilians and the wounding and displacement of many times more than that, more, more people than that. It created, as you all know, a cascade of instability around the region that we are still dealing with today in Syria and elsewhere and we will be dealing with that for many years to come. And by the way, that war in Iraq cost us trillions of dollars, 
money that should have been spent on health care, education, infrastructure, and environmental protection. In other words, in other words, it is easy to give a powerful speech about why we have to go to war, but it is far more important that we do everything that we can to solve global conflicts without going to war. The war in Iraq, like many other military conflicts, had unintended consequences. It ended up making us less safe, not more safe. In contrast, the Iran nuclear deal, a deal that didn't promote or prompt great dramatic speeches, a deal that was enormously complicated, a deal that took an enormous amount of quiet diplomatic work, that deal helped the security of the United States and our partners. Yes, it helped the security of Israel, as many Israeli security experts have acknowledged. That is the power of diplomacy. That, in my view, is what real leadership is about. Some who oppose this nuclear deal have attacked its supporters, including Jay Shreet, for being part of a so-called echo chamber. The truth is that here in Washington, there has been for many, many years a very loud and powerful echo chamber which called for war. It is about time that we had an echo chamber that called for peace. Thank you, J Street. As some of you may know, a few years ago when I was a young man, I had a connection to the state of Israel in the sense that I lived on a kibbutz for many months in Haifa. And it was a very powerful experience for me, something that I will never forget. It was there that I saw and experienced for myself many of the progressive values upon which the State of Israel was founded. I think it is important for everyone but particularly for progressives, to acknowledge the enormous achievement of establishing a democratic homeland for the Jewish people after centuries of displacement and persecution, and particularly after the horrors of the Holocaust. But as, as we all know, there was another side to the story with regard to Israel's creation.
a more painful side. Like our own country, the founding of Israel involved the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people already living there, the Palestinian people. Over 700,000 people were made refugees. To acknowledge this painful historical fact does not delegitimize Israel any any more than acknowledging the trail of tears, what settlers did to Native Americans, delegitimizes the United States of America. But I didn't come here today simply to revisit a history that all of us are familiar with or to say one historical narrative is wrong and one is right. My question here today, and I think the question on all of our minds is, okay, what now? What do Israelis and Palestinians do from here on out? What should be U.S. policy to end this conflict that has gone on for so long, to end this 50-year-long occupation and to create a better, more secure, and more prosperous future for Jews and Arabs, Israelis, and Palestinians alike. As I think all of you know, this decades-long conflict has taken so much from so many. Nobody gains when Israel spends an enormous part of its budget on the military. Nobody gains when Gaza is obliterated and thousands are killed, wounded, or made homeless. Nobody gains when children, children and young men and young women are trained to become suicide bombers. Nobody gains when year after year, decade after decade, the talk is about war and hatred rather than peace and development. Think for a moment about the incredible potential that is being lost when Israelis and Palestinians are not coming together effectively to address the environmental and economic challenges of that region. And I will remember some years ago, I got a small sum of money, not a whole lot, to bring Israelis and people from the region together Jordan and Egypt and other countries. Not to talk about the political differences, but to talk about the major and severe economic crises and environmental crises facing that region. 
And it was really a beautiful moment to be in a room where sensible people were focusing on the water crisis in that area, how we provide water to people, the future of water. And that has got to be what our goal is. Our goal is bringing people together in the region to solve the very serious problems that they have. Our goal must be to see people come together in peace and democracy to create a region in which all people, Jews and Arabs, Israelis, Palestinians, have the decent life that all human beings are entitled to. Now, I am not naive. I am not naive. And I understand that given the realities of today, that vision, a vision where people come together in the Middle East to focus on the serious environmental, economic, and social problems that exist, I understand that today that vision appears distant and to some may be far-fetched. But it is a vision, especially in these difficult days, that we cannot afford to give up on. So what should we as progressives, American progressives, Israeli progressives, and progressives globally demand of our governments in bringing that kind of future to the people. Let's take a moment to talk about values. It is often said that the U.S.-Israeli relationship is based on shared values, and I think that's correct. But then we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by shared values? What values are we, in fact, talking about? As progressives, here are some of the values that we share in this country and around the world. We believe in democracy. We believe in equality. We believe in pluralism. We are strongly opposed to xenophobia. We respect and we will protect the rights of minorities. Those are our values, and those values are based upon the very simple notion, a notion that goes back thousands of thousands of years, a notion that is installed in the Bible, a notion that says that all human beings, no matter what color our skin, no matter what part of the world we live in, no matter what religion we practice, but that as human beings, we share a common humanity. And that humanity is, no matter where you are, that humanity is that we all want our kids to grow up healthy. We want our children to have the best education possible. We want our kids to go out and have decent and meaningful and productive jobs. We want our kids to have water that they can drink, which is clean, and air 
that they can breathe, which is also clean. And we also together understand, we also understand that if we continue along the same path with regards to climate change, that planet in the Middle East, in the United States, will in fact not be a healthy planet for our kids and future generations. And sharing those values, our job is to do everything that we can to oppose all of the political forces in our country and around the world who, in fact, are trying to tear us apart. And this is not just an American phenomenon. This is obviously a global phenomenon. Earlier this month, at a White House press conference with Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, President Trump was asked whether he supported a two-state solution. His answer was, quote, I am looking at two-state and one-state, and I like the one that both parties like, end quote. Well, I think he was thinking that maybe he was being asked whether he liked Coca-Cola or Pepsi-Cola better. That is not the answer that an American president today should have been giving. We should be clear. The two-state solution, which involves the establishment of a Palestinian state in the territories occupied in 1967, has been bipartisan U.S. policy for many years. It is also supported by an overwhelming international consensus which was reaffirmed in December by the United Nations Security Council Resolution 2334. Now while I understand that the Trump administration has walked that statement back, the casual manner in which President Trump appeared to abandon the two-state policy was extremely concerning, but also unfortunately typical of the carelessness with which he has managed American foreign policy thus far. The President has said that he supports a peace deal, but this doesn't mean much. The real question is, peace on what terms and under what arrangement? Does peace mean that Palestinians will be forced to live under perpetual Israeli rule in a series of disconnected communities in the West Bank and Gaza? That is not tolerable, and that is not peace. If Palestinians in the occupied territories are to be denied self-determination in a state of their own, will they receive full citizenship and equal rights in a single state, potentially meaning the end of a Jewish majority state? These are very serious questions with significant implication for America's broader regional partnerships and goals. Friends, the United States and the State of Israel have a strong bond going back to the moment of Israel's founding. 
There is no question that we should be and will be Israel's very strong friend and ally in the year, years to come. There is no debate about that. But at the same time, we must recognize that Israel's continued occupation of Palestinian territories and its daily restrictions on the political and civil liberties of the Palestinian people runs contrary to fundamental American values and, I believe, Israeli values as well. As former Secretary of State John Kerry rightly said in his speech in December, and I quote, friends need to tell each other the hard truths, end quote. And the hard truth is that the continued occupation and the growth of Israeli settlements that the occupation sustains undermines the possibility of peace. It contributes to suffering and contributes to violence. As the UN Security Council reaffirmed on December 23rd, the settlements also constitute a flagrant violation of international law. I applaud the Obama administration's decision to abstain from vetoing UN Security Council resolution. Those of us who worry about the future of Israel, those of us who really support Israel, have got to tell the truth about policies that are hurting chances of Israel and the Palestinians reaching a peaceful resolution. Now, I recognize that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is one of the most emotionally fraught issues in U.S. politics, involving, as it does, the legitimate historical claims, identities, and security of two people in the same region. So let me be as clear as I can be. To oppose the policies of a right-wing government in Israel does not make one anti-Israel or anti-Semitic. We can oppose the policies of President Trump without being anti-American. We can oppose the policies of Netanyahu without being anti-Israel. We can oppose the policies of Islamic extremism without being anti-Muslim. As I have said many, many times, peace means security, not only for every Israeli, but also for every Palestinian. 
It means supporting self-determination, civil rights, and economic well-being for both peoples. These ideas are based in the very same shared values that impel us to condemn anti-Semitic bigotry, condemn anti-Muslim bigotry, and to make our society a more perfect society. The values of inclusiveness, security, democracy, and justice should inform not only America's engagement with Israel and Palestine, but with the region and the world. That is what we stand for. The United States will continue its unwavering commitment to the safety of the State of Israel, but we must also be clear that peacefully resolving this conflict is the best way to ensure the long-term safety of both peoples and for making America more secure. To my, Israeli, to my Israeli friends here with us today, let me say that we share many of the same challenges. In both of our countries, we see the rise of a politics of bigotry and intolerance and resentment. We must meet these challenges together as you struggle to make your nation better, more just, more egalitarian. I want to say to you, your fight is our fight. Thank you all very much. And that was Bernie Sanders' speech to J Street. Up next, we have a piece from Cory Booker at booker.senate.gov. This is called Affordable and Safe Prescription Drug Importation Act Introduced to Help Lower Skyrocketing Cost of Medicine. Senators Cory Booker, Bernie Sanders, and Bob Casey introduced legislation Tuesday to lower the skyrocketing cost of prescription drugs by allowing Americans to import safe, low-cost medicine from Canada. Representatives Elijah Cummings and Lloyd Doggett introduced a companion bill in the House. Both measures would authorize the Secretary of Health and Human Services in two years to allow importation from other advanced countries. In Canada and other major countries, the same medications manufactured by the same companies in the same factories are available for a fraction of the price compared to the United States. In 2014, Americans spend $1,112 per person on prescription drugs, while Canadians spend $772, and Danes spend $325. While five major drug manufacturers made more than $50 billion in profits in 2015, nearly one in three Americans could not afford the medicine they were prescribed at some point in their lives. Booker said, quote, life-saving medications will only save lives if people can afford them. Our common sense legis legislation is a step forward, allowing for the importation of prescription drugs under a set of strong and effective standards necessary 
to ensure consumer safety. Since my days as a Newark mayor, I've been working to find ways to help more people afford prescription drugs, and this bill will do just that. I am very proud to join with Senators Booker and Casey and Reps, Senators Booker and Casey and Reps Cummings and Doggett and many, many others in the Senate and the House to introduce critical legislation to lower the outrageous cost of prescription drugs, Sanders said. I say to President Trump, talk is cheap. If you really have the guts to take on the pharmaceutical industry, tell your Republican friends in the House and the Senate to pass this legislation. Do it tonight in your address to Congress, or admit to the American people that you were lying to them during the campaign. Quote, after he was elected, President Trump said he would bring down drug prices. He also warned that the pharmaceutical industry is getting away with murder. And he was absolutely right, Cummings said. So, the pre so if the president really means what he says, he will support our efforts and will encourage his Republican colleagues to do the same. The legislation, the Affordable and Safe Prescription Drug Importation Act, introduced in the Senate and House, would instruct the Secretary of Health and Human Services to put forward regulations allowing wholesalers, pharmacies, and individuals to import qualifying prescription drugs from licensed Canadian sellers. After two years, the Secretary would have the authority to permit importation from countries in the Organizations for Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD, with standards for the approval and sale of prescription drugs that are comparable to those in the United States. The bill includes detailed provisions outlining safeguards and consumer protections that ensure the safety of imported drugs, including FDA certification of foreign sellers, a clear definition of what drugs may be imported, and supply chain security requirements. So this is happening, and in particular, Cory Booker is sponsoring it because of you. Because after Cory Booker was one of a dozen Democrats to vote against Bernie Sanders' similar legislation, and I, I will say this legislation seems to be more detailed than Bernie's original legis legislation was, but both have the same goal. But after Booker and Menendez here in New Jersey and, a, you know, 10 others voted against Bernie's amendment, which would have passed with their support, there was... I'll say an appropriate amount of outrage. Maybe there even wasn't enough outrage, but there was plenty of outrage. Booker, shortly after that vote, uh, was, took part in a healthcare in in our first stands healthcare event in Newark, and he was faced with quite a lot of anger from that crowd. Uh, from what I'm told, and I wasn't present, he. He seemed to cut his uh, comments short in facing the pressure that was coming from the progressives who were rightly angry at him for blocking that initial amendment. So that is what turned Booker around, not some uh, benevolent choice on his part, but feeling the pressure from the public 
turned him into a not only supporter but a sponsor of very similar legislation. The downside is that original amendment put forward by Bernie Sanders would have succeeded if those 12 Democrats had voted for it. This new legislation, while arguably a better bill, has a much smaller chance of succeeding. So is it a case of, of course I support it, as long as it won't work, as long as it won't get passed, support it. Uh, when the opportunity to get this passed was blown earlier on. I don't know. And we shall see where this particular bill goes. But with the current Congress, I think as a standalone, it's uh, dead in the water. As perhaps another amendment to something else that the Republicans are pushing forward, maybe it has a chance. And sticking to the subject of drug prices for another story here, this is from ibtimes.com. This is by David Serrata. A week before his inauguration, Donald Trump said that when it came to drug prices, pharmaceutical companies were, quote, getting away, away with murder. And he pledged to take decisive action to reduce the rising costs of medicine. Six weeks into his presidency, though, his government has moved to help drug companies block shareholder initiatives designed to help bring more scrutiny to drug price increases. With drug prices skyrocketing in the United States, investor groups last year filed shareholder resolutions with 13 drug companies that, if passed, would force their boards to more meticulously detail their price increases for major medicines and to provide, quote, the rationale and criteria used for these price increases. These are shareholders. These are not uh, progressive and radical activists calling on the drug companies, not that they don't, to release this kind of information. This is shareholders because, you know what? This is, again, somewhere else where we're winning. These shareholders wouldn't have decided uh, to just ask the companies to do this on their own. This is because when the media, Bernie Sanders or someone else, um, gets out in the media, these exorbitant increases, ridiculous increases in drug prices that these companies are putting forward, these stock prices take a huge hit. They take a nosedive. And a lot of them recover, but that scares the hell out of the shareholders. The shareholders don't want that uncertainty. So the shareholders are saying, hey, we want you to be more transparent about why, what the reasons are that you are increasing drug prices when you make price increases. And so 13 drug companies had these shareholder resolutions put forward. Unfortunately, despite Trump's 
promises in the campaign, he has no desire or his administration has no desire to support those efforts. Days after Trump met with pharmaceutical industry CEOs at the White House, the Securities and Exchange Commission endorsed drug companies' moves to block the resolutions from being voted on by shareholders at their annual meetings. That's kind of foolish, too, because in all likelihood, those resolutions would not, not succeed. But I guess they just don't want those votes to be on the record. The SEC move followed Trump promoting Republican SEC Commissioner Michael Piwawar to serve as acting chairman of the agency. The SEC win for the pharmaceutical industry represents the latest victory for an industry that has been ramping up efforts to stop governments from taking action to lower or force more disclosure about drug pricing. Last month, federal lawmakers from both parties helped the industry block Senate legislation to let Americans purchase lower-priced FDA-approved medicines from Canada. Meanwhile, in the last two years, drug companies have been largely successful in their fight against a barrage of price transparency bills. Such legislation has been stymied in all but one state. Vermont. And this story goes on, so if you want to read more about it, it is at ibtimes.com. It is by David Serrata, S-I-R-O-T-A. It's called, Will Drug Prices Come Down as Donald Trump Promised? His regulators help pharmaceutical companies block shareholder questions about rising drug prices. And this piece from New York Daily News. And its byline says, The Associated Press. It is called Illinois Town that backed President Trump in election, supports Mexican restaurant manager detained by ICE officials. And this is happening again and again. I just read a similar story today. There were other stories uh, a week or two ago um, also along the same lines. Incredibly compassionate and productive immigrants in this country that aren't documented, that are getting picked up for minor or old crimes and facing deportation. A Southern Illinois community that solidly backed President Donald Trump has rallied behind a Mexican restaurant manager who doesn't have legal permission to live in the U.S. and has been detained by immigration officials. Letters of support for Juan Carlos Hernandez Pacheco have poured in from West Frankfurt's mayor, police chief, high school athletic director, and the county prosecutor. They describe Hernandez as a role model and praise his robust civic involvement, including funding school scholarships, benefit dinners for families in need, and hosting a law enforcement appreciation event. Hernandez, 38 came to the U.S. in the 1990s, but didn't obtain legal status, according to friends. He has been the manager of La Fiesta Mexican Restaurant for a decade in the community, with coal mining routes about 100 miles southeast of St. Louis. He was arrested at his home earlier this month and remains in custody at a U.S. Immigration Customs and Enforcement facility 
outside St. Louis. ICE officials, that's Immigration Customs and Enforcement, did not explain why Pacheco was arrested, but noted his drunken driving convictions from 2017. Some residents in the community of roughly 8,000 didn't know Hernandez lacked legal status in the U.S. until the word spread of his arrest. Though the community largely backed Trump, who has made an aggressive stance on immigration central to his agenda and has promised to deport millions of immigrants who have no permission to live here. Many residents of West Frankfurt said Hernandez's case has complicated their views on immigration policy. I think people need to do the things the right way, follow the rules and obey the laws, and I firmly believe in that, Lori Barron, the owner of a beauty salon, told the New York Times. But in the case of Carlos, I think he may have done more for the people here than this place has ever given him. I think it's absolutely terrible that he could be taken away. Hernandez's attorney is push pushing for him to be freed on bond until his case can be heard. His wife, Elizabeth Hernandez, and three children are U.S. citizens. She told a Carbondale Southern Illinoisan that she hopes her husband can come home and, quote, continue his efforts on becoming an American citizen, something that he has wished for a very long time. And I think that story and many, many, many other stories just like it show it's easy to be for or against something when you don't have a connection to it. And it becomes abstract, and it becomes theoretical. But when it gets real, and you recognize that that pillar in your community is undocumented, and is picked up, and is detained, and is deported, you've lost. You've lost an enormous amount. You can't even say what it, what you've lost. You've lost that part of your community, that part part of uh, individuals that make up your community. Community isn't a location. It's not a city. It's not a downtown. It's not a city block. It's not a country valley community is the people it's what they do it's how they support each other that's what makes it a community and when you start to lose individuals then you start to lose your community and that is happening already and will continue to happen again and again with the focus that the Trump administration has put on undocumented immigrants. So this next piece is by Common Dreams. It is called Keep Showing Up. After Trump's address, Sanders urges continued resistance. This is by Nadia Prupis. 
Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont recorded a response to President Donald Trump's first address to Congress on Tuesday night, breaking down the speech's biggest takeaways, or lack thereof, and calling on viewers to keep up the resistance. Quote, Sometimes what is more important is what somebody does not say, as opposed to what they actually say, Sanders said in a Facebook Live video recorded immediately after the speech. Some examples. At a time when over half of older Americans have no retirement savings, I did not hear President Trump say one word, not one word, about Social Security or Medicare, despite it being a cornerstone of his election campaign. Furthermore, Sanders continued, not only did President Trump not mention the issue of voter suppression, what Republican governors are doing all over this country to make it harder for people to participate in our democracy. But the truth of the matter is, his administration is now working overtime with Republican governors to make it harder for young people, low-income people, senior citizens, and people of color to vote. He also slammed Trump's failure to mention climate change, mass incarceration, student debt, and the U.S. Supreme Court's Citizen United ruling, among other issues. All this means people resisting the president's agenda will be crucial in the coming months, he said, praising those who have gotten involved with various efforts, such as packing town hall meetings and asking hard questions of their representatives, and urging those who have not yet joined to do so. Quote, those of you who attended rallies or town hall meetings, keep showing up, keep calling Congress, and continue to fight, he said. If you haven't taken action yet, we need your voice. Only together, when millions of people stand up for economic justice, for social justice, for racial justice, for environmental justice, only then can we create a political revolution that will turn this country around. And finally, this episode, another piece from CommonDreams.org, this one by Andrea Germanos. It is called, Arkansas Lawmaker Introduces Bill to Ban Howard Zinn from Classrooms. Can't remember if it was last episode or the episode before. I uh, closed the episode with part of a speech by Howard Zinn. And then shortly thereafter, I read about this. A Republican Arkansas lawmaker has introduced legislation to ban the works of the late historian, activist, and writer Howard Zinn from publicly funded schools. The bill from Representative Kim Hendren, just noted by the Arkansas Times, was introduced and referred to the House Committee on Education. It states that any, quote, public school district or an open enrollment public charter school shall not include in its curriculum or course materials for a class or program of study any book or other material authored by Zinn from 1959 until 2010, the year in which he died. And it goes on actually to say, you cannot even have in your curriculum any pieces 
that reference writing by Howard Zinn. So not only is actual writings of Howard Zinn, which he is author of numerous books and other pieces, not only are those all banned under this act, but you cannot introduce any type of item to the curriculum that references Zinn's materials. The Zinn Education Project, which aims, quote, to introduce students to a more accurate, complex, and engaging understanding of United States history than is found in traditional textbooks and curricula, noted Thursday that educators in the state may have a very different take from Hendren. Quote, to date, there are more than 250 teachers in Arkansas who have signed up to access people's history lessons from the Zinn Education Project website. The project is also offering a free copy of Zinn's Seminal of People's History of the United States to any Arkansas teacher who requests it. At least one high school class in northern Arkansas is making its opposition to the legislation clear already. And I think in addition to any teacher being able to get a free copy of Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, I think every student in Arkansas deserves one too. So I started a GoFundMe, and I'm going to raise money, and whatever amount of money I get in, I'm going to buy some books for Arkansas students. And if it's enough for a book, then I'll buy a book. If it's enough for 200 books, then that's what I will buy and provide to students in Arkansas. I think that the writings of Howard Zinn are important for every American citizen to read. And it's something that you, you don't learn in school. And any, any teacher who is teaching this in school is doing extremely well by their students. So the more, the better. And it's outrageous that this bill has been introduced to ban the works of Howard Zinn. On the bright side, none of these teachers would be getting free copies of A People's History of the United States, nor would any students, uh, if not for this bill. If not for this bill, Howard Zinn's works wouldn't be on the tips of the tongues of many more hundreds and hundreds of people than they were without this bill. So just like uh, Mitch Daniels' effort to silence Elizabeth Warren and her reading of Coretta Scott King's testimony in a, to a, a previous Congress amplified that testimony, this bill will serve to amplify Howard Zinn, his awareness of Howard Zinn, and knowledge of what Howard Zinn wrote about. And that's all a good thing. And this isn't the first time that a prominent or maybe not so prominent politician has tried to ban the works of Howard Zinn. Mitch Daniels did the same in, I believe that was Illinois, though it may have been Indiana. 
so I apologize for not knowing that for sure. But Mitch Daniels uh, did the same thing, and David Rovix, one of the best and most prolific topical songwriters, I've featured some of his music before, uh, that's writing today, wrote a song about it. And I'm going to close the episode out with Mitch Daniels by David Rovix. But before that, I'll let you know if you want to reach out to me, go ahead and send me a message at BernieUS2020 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2020. You can find out more about Bernie2020 at Bernie-2020.com. And you can also support this podcast by going to patreon.com slash unrelated things. And if you go there, you'll actually see my new project. So I've just launched a new podcast. Something that's driven me and supported me and been uh, helpful in my activism has been political music. And I'm a huge fan of music that tells a certain story or puts forward a specific message regarding politics and really progressive politics. So there's an enormous amount of music out there that's written to support the struggles that people face. And like the song that started out this this episode, Legalize Our Love, like this song that's going to close out the episode, Mitch Daniels by David Rovix. I wanted to be able to share that music with as many people as possible. So I have launched a new podcast. It's called Polyrical as in Political Lyrics, P-O-L-Y-R-I-C-A-L. You can find out more about that at polyrical.com. You can support that also at the same Patreon, patreon.com slash unrelated things. And that is just launched. The first episode is out, and I'm just trying to get it more well-known and off the ground. I'm very excited to be able to do that. It's something I've been wanting to do for a long time. But it doesn't come cheap because that music is licensed music and purchasing those licenses to share that music is uh, not inexpensive. So if you check that out and you enjoy it, think about supporting that via Patreon. So anyway, without any further delay, here is Mitch Daniels by David Robix. This is off the album, All the News That's Fit to Sing. Thanks for listening. Mitch Daniels was the governor of Indiana. Now he is the president of Purdue. But back when he was governor, he asked his staff to look into what they might be able to do. He said, now that this old man has kicked the bucket, can we finally stop taking it on the chin? Can we
only find an excuse. Whatever one will work to ban all the books of Howard's in. I want to ban them, he said, from the libraries. I want to ban them from each curriculum. Ban them from the grade schools. Ban them from the high schools. Ban them from each college syllabi. And quietly the books started disappearing. There in the heartland of the free. But oops, now we know, cause his emails are public and were discovered by a reporter from AP. They're banning books in Indiana. The governor wants to censor what you read because a patriotic history of half-truths and lies is all the history you need. The story hit the presses at least a bit. And Mitch Daniels then denied the truth. Which is funny because that's just like the diet of nonsense Mr. Daniels would feed to the youth. American democracy is the best in the world, and everything is going according to plan. And any pesky historians who want to expose that crap, it's time to burn and censor and ban. They're banning books in Indiana. The governor wants to censor what you read Because the patriotic history of half-truths and lies Is all the history you need It needs to be bleached and masticated. Red, white, and blue are the colors for Mitch. Shades of gray are far too complicated. Columbus discovered America. It's the world's best democracy, and America always wins. And if sometimes things don't go quite the way they should, Jesus will forgive our sins. They're banning books in Indiana. The governor wants to censor what you read Because a patriotic history of half-truths and lies Is all the history you need They're banning books in Indiana The governor wants to censor what you read Because a patriotic history of half-truths and lies Is all the history you need